so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. Our websites, Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com, are working really hard to make sure you have information that will help you in this time that your wallet may be in critical care. So there is more and more backlash about the corruption that occurred with the payroll protection program loans that I gave you the latest update on yesterday. The newest amount of money is about to be available, which is a a very large amount, almost as large as the original amount. But if you haven't heard this, if you're a small business owner, the reason that money turned out not to be available for you or you could not find a financial institution that would take your application is there was an action that doesn't look like it was a conspiracy of the nation's large banks but looks like individually the nation's large banks uh, in a very corrupt way did not implement the payroll protection program as designed and in fact There are allegations and lawsuits against several big banks that they specifically used internal software to make sure that the loan money and the applications that were processed were only for their biggest, most important customers. They also uh, went around the intent of the payroll protection program being for small businesses and funneled money specifically to publicly traded companies where this was designed for small local businesses generally that employ less than 20 people although there were larger companies up to 500 people that could qualify but now there's new numbers out today that there are companies worth billions of dollars billions of dollars that their bankers at the biggest banks push through using loopholes in the legislation because the legislation was drawn so quickly and funneled money to these companies. Well, this is unbelievable. And there's now petitions circulating, including one specifically targeting a large publicly traded steakhouse, Ruth's Chris, where Ruth's Chris was able to get a huge loan under this program And the petition that's circulating, people are um, saying, give the money back, just like Shake Shack did. And there are many other companies being called out by name, although I was going to name a lot of them. And then I realized, reading through the list, unless somebody's a a big uh, Wall Street kind of person, these companies, for the most part, don't do business with the public. You're not going to know who they are. But they were able because of dirty uh, behavior by the big banks, able to get this money, and the big banks just pushed away the people the program was designed for. Well, overnight, the U.S. Treasury Department had the SBA issue new regulations for this new round of money that companies will not be able to access it If they are a publicly traded company that has what's referred to as substantial market value. The other thing 
is that uh, big companies that actually have access to other funds will not be able to draw from this program because several of the companies that got huge, huge loans that are forgivable through the Paycheck Protection Program said in filings they also got all kinds of loans other places like any really strong credit worthy business could this was just a matter of stealing money from the taxpayers from these big companies so now there's such a focus on it that it's going to be a lot easier this round for the small businesses that the paycheck protection program was actually designed for to get these loans now there's been wonderful stories over the last four days one after another i've been reading from around the country about small local community banks doing what the program was designed for and employees doing 12-hour shifts night and day to do loan application processing so that small local businesses could get the money so the problem here has been exclusively almost 100 percent with the 20 largest banks in the country the behemoths that are super regionals or the four giant monster megas have perverted the purpose of the program and so one of the things that's going to happen this time is much more of the lending is going to come through small banks and also through non-traditional lenders and this is just absolutely appalling that the big banks have been behaving so badly in this case one other thing i want to mention there's a new report today that people have put one trillion dollars in savings a trillion in big banks feeling that that's going to be the safe place for people who have money to ride out the coronavirus fallout for the economy they're putting money in these giant banks getting basically zero percent interest this is a terrible idea if you've got money that you have pulled out of other places or money that you are holding on to for dear life with the recession we're in put it in an online bank a small local bank or a credit union the only key criteria is that a bank be insured by fdic and then your money's protected to a quarter million and that's a good problem to have to have a quarter million dollars sitting around and the other thing is with a credit union that they're ncua insured in either case you have the full backing of the u.s government and your money's completely safe and you'll earn far 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 more on your idle cash than you ever would in one of those stinking giant banks and thank you so much for having faith in us with all the questions you're posting for us around the clock at clark.com ask and what we're doing for now is instead of me speaking to you directly post your questions producers Kim and Joel are asking your questions for you. And Kim, who do you have up first? All right. Today we are starting with Victoria. She says, I am self-employed. 
I applied for both uh, EIDL and PPP and unemployment at the very beginning of all this. Yesterday, I received additional information to finally fill out my PUA unemployment, and I did so. But then this morning, I received a $1,000 auto deposit from EIDL. No email or context to go with it. So my question is, can I proceed with the unemployment claim anyway, or is that considered double dipping with the EIDL? If not, do I report the $1,000 when claiming my weekly unemployment? Obviously, $1,000 is not enough for two weeks Two months out of work, excuse me. So the 1000 is actually a forgivable grant. It's just money. It's, it's almost part of the helicopter money. When the IDLE program, uh, that's how, you, how they in the bureaucracy say EIDL, when the IDLE program originally existed, it was to deal with areas that had been declared disaster areas from hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, natural disasters. And it was modified for coronavirus, made national, and originally was designed to have $10,000 grants. They were not loans, just you applied and you got those in addition to whatever money you were attempting to borrow. Because there were so many applicants, the money ran out and they marked down the 10000 to 1000 As far as I know, those grants do not affect in any way your application for unemployment, and as best I've been able to read, they're not going to be taxable. But, you know, right now with all the attempts at helicopter money, I'd, I want to hedge my answer on that part. I mean, we know that the, uh, the money coming in the stimulus checks that are coming, the 1200 bucks, that that is non-taxable, and my assumption is the $1,000 you've received is non-taxable. But I wouldn't take my assumption to the bank or to your tax return yet. Joel? Clark Steve says, how are you handling your peer-to-peer investments right now with all the economic turmoil? I've had a small investment with Lending Club for many years and recently have turned off my automatic investing. I plan to turn it back on in a few months. What do you think? So, you know, I have the experiment I did on the behalf of our listeners where I guess it's been now four years ago, I put in money into Lending Club and Prosper to see what the experience is actually like on the ground. And so I've been watching since coronavirus and my defaults have gone up in my portfolio of loans, but not terribly. In addition, they have changed the credit criteria for making any future loans. So they've made it much tougher for people to get loans from here forward because there are so many people right when they need to borrow the most, um, there's a fear that that these peer-to-peer lenders would end up just throwing our money away because so many people wouldn't be able to pay back the loans. So we won't really know, I figure till August or September, what the true fallout is on defaults. And one thing with all the hardship people are experiencing, sometimes we forget that the overwhelming percent of Americans are still employed. So it is a segment of the population that is suffering mightily, while the remainder nervously hold on to their employment. Kim? 
All right, Chris says, my daughter is home from college and looking for a job. She babysat last year, but that's no longer an option. I recommended that she look into some of the online grocery delivery companies as possibilities. She says that she Googled them and they don't get great reviews as employers. I'm curious what you think of these jobs for a college college student or if there's a better alternative in your opinion. So there's going to be opportunities first. Oh, I should answer that first. So, yeah, there's a lot of griping by people who've worked for Instacart or Shipped or any similar kind of organizations. But it does provide an opportunity for you to basically test drive them as a source of income. They're both looking to hire a lot of people now. Um, We've gone from a tiny percent of Americans doing grocery delivery to now, I think it's, somewhere close to 30% of people have at least tried it over the last month. So there's an enormous need for you right now. And so I think for a college student, try it. If it is as awful as the reviews you've read, then you know, well, that was nice and you don't do it anymore. But another opportunity that's coming is being a community tracing worker. So around the country, we're going to have public health departments state by state hiring from a small number of people to in the thousands to trace people who have come into contact with someone who tests positive for coronavirus. It is very labor intensive and it's one of the things we're going to have to do going forward in order to um, have people back out working and have businesses reopen is to try as early as possible to prevent a mass outbreak again in an area. And that will be not only doing a great public service, but it's also a potential source for employment for college students who aren't going to have the normal job opportunities they would have had being out of school now. And if a college student doesn't have any serious pre-existing condition, the risk for to your life from coronavirus is teensy tiny. Joel? Clark Andrew says, I've heard you talk about the lifting of fees for taking money out of a 401k. First of all, does, does this extend to 403bs? And secondly, is this money considered a loan that will need to be repaid? Or does it just come out penalty free and off to pay taxes on it next year? Yes, 403bs apply. And the way it works is it is a taxable event without the 10% penalty. You're allowed to pay the tax over three years, but in one of the most unusual provisions, if you get solidly back on your feet and you pay back the loan, then there's no tax owed. Never before has there been a situation, even if you withdraw the money, you're able to pay it back. And nothing like that has ever existed before. So it's a ultra flexible opportunity if you're out of other ways to pay your bills. Today's Clark Rave, where we're putting positive energy into the universe, comes courtesy of a story I saw in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about a restaurant owner in an Atlanta suburb who had no money to pay for employees. And this woman named Charity sold her used 2016 Mustang to be able to pay her eight employees. She was able not only to pay them for a month, 
but she was also able to catch up on the rent. She figures that she has barely enough money saved that she's going to be able to keep the employees paid for another month, too, with the idea, hopefully, that business will have picked up enough by the month of June that the business will be able to support itself again. But I think about the amazing things people are doing to help others and the loyalty of so many small business owners to their employees is so heartwarming. And what Charity did was really, really great for her employees and for a business's future. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com are dedicated. Our team working at both websites dedicated to giving you information around the clock that will help you stretch every dollar you've got. And speaking of dollars that people hope they got, it's the stimulus money, the 1200 bucks for an adult and then $500 for dependent kids up to age 16. Um, a portion of Americans now have received their money, but a lot more to come. In fact, specifically, you're going to start seeing if you are a senior citizen who is retired on Social Security, that money may start showing up for you from the helicopter money this week, next week, the week after. But there will be payments continuing all the way into late summer, early fall, because many people will be paid by check. Well, the U.S. Treasury Department didn't want to mail these checks. So they set up an online portal at irs.gov where someone could go on and identify themselves and then put in direct deposit information to receive the money. Now there are multiple reports in the media that criminals have been going to the IRS website, putting in false information that they are you, putting in direct deposit information for the money to go to them, and stealing your stimulus money. And this is a terrible, terrible problem that started apparently with the humongous Equifax data breach of a few years ago that exposed the personal information, including social security numbers, on nearly 150 million Americans. And criminals are just having a field day using that information to impersonate you because they know your social, they know all kinds of other personal information about you, and they are falsely applying as they are you, as if they are you. And the IRS is not responding. Any of the re articles I've read about this problem with the false applications stealing your stimulus money, the IRS is mute. They are not responding to any news organization, a reporter anywhere, saying what they're going to do about it, whether they're going to put new procedures in place so that they go through a verification to make sure you really are who you say you are, 
And more importantly, for people who've already had their stimulus money stolen, they have not come up with any procedure I can find yet how they're going to make the money good to you after they've already paid it to a crook. And I know if we go with uh, people filing false tax returns and applying for a fake refund, that once that has happened in prior years, it takes typically 10 to 14 months to get a refund you're due. I'm hoping this doesn't end up taking 10 to 14 months to make people whole with the stimulus money they were supposed to have. The only way I know for you to push the system if your money's been stolen is every member of the U.S. House and Senate have what are known as constituent service offices, but don't go to your senator. Figure out who your congressman is and go to your congressman's office because the senators get overwhelmed with these constituent requests because uh, people don't know typically who their congressman is, but they might know who their senator is, so they call the senator's local office in the state. Find out who your congressman is. Call his or her constituent service office, local office in the district. Tell them the problem you're having and get them working the problem. Now, what's important is the IRS isn't going to want all these what are known as congressionals overwhelming them. So they will scramble and come up with a procedure for people who've been cheated out of their helicopter money to petition the IRS to reissue the money to the right party. The IRS also needs to, for now, pull down the special link at irs.gov where you put in your direct deposit information until they can bake into it proper security so the money is not stolen. Another angle I want to mention to you, a security firm called Checkpoint reports that there are now many, many, many thousands of fake websites pretending that they are there for the various forms of government assistance that is available today. Um, many of those will end .com or .us or something like that. Remember, federal agencies are .gov. Many state agencies are also .gov. Do not click on something that then asks you for a variety of personal information. So know that you are at the actual real websites. If you're applying for unemployment, it will be your State Department of Labor Unemployment Office. If you're uh, applying for dealing with the IRS about a stimulus check, it is irs.gov. And if you were doing a payroll protection program loan, then you go to a lender, not to what appears to be a government website. And if you're applying for an EIDL, the EIDL disaster relief loan, you go to sba.gov. But be aware there are thousands of these websites out there where what people are trying to get out of you are things like your checking account number your so they can steal money from it with um, what's known as an automated clearinghouse, something banks don't have good security over. Or they will try to get your social security number to engage in identity theft or any of a number of ways they will try to steal money from you. 
I want you to know that not everybody out there is a louse, a terrible person, but the really, really sleazy scamsters come out during a crisis, during a disaster, and prey on people's vulnerabilities and try to steal as much as they can. Kim? All right. Diane says that during the winter months, they rent a home in Florida and the lease is up. So they have no choice but to travel north to the Wisconsin home. While they're driving, they're going to be hauling a large boat and they're concerned about the hotels that we'll need to stop at on on the way due to COVID-19. How do they ensure a safe and sterile environment? Is there anything that they should be asking the hotels or would you recommend that they just sleep in their car? There's a lot of people afraid about staying in hotels because they're worried about transmission of germs. And I want to tell you that everything you read from uh, the CDC and other sources says that although the coronavirus could linger on surfaces, that almost without exception, the transmission has been person to person. Having said that, Any place you go into, you want to know what are they doing to disinfect. And I would say if you are thinking of stopping at a hotel to spend the night, you call the hotel during daytime hours when a general manager will be there, not in the evening when you'll have uh, generally only the the part-time front desk people. And you say, what are you doing to disinfect and sanitize because we're thinking of staying at your property on the way back home and if you get not what seems like a sincere answer you know that's not your place to stay and there are people sleeping in cars because they are worried about this but I think that you should be able to find hotels that are doing proper sanitizing and that you can feel more comfortable sleeping at night. One other thing I wanted to say, though, just because your lease is up where you are, we're moving into the teeth of the off-season in Florida, and if you do want to stay, you should be able to find pretty easily another place you could stay for an extended period of time, a number of months, at a much lower price, likely, than you were paying to this point. Joel? Clark Matt says, I don't know much about HSA interest rates, but I just received an email from my HSA administrator stating that the interest rate is decreasing from 0.1 to 0.05. What does this mean? That means that you are with an HSA provider that is really, really mistreating you because the interest rates that they were paying you basically is zero, paying you one-tenth of one percent. Now, paying you five one hundredths of one percent so it's just a joke what they're paying you there are any of a number of hsa administrators that offer really robust plans at extremely low cost and i would recommend that you look at moving your hsa money to another provider as a better way for you to have what would be a genuine deal on your HSA. One thing, though, I'm a big believer with HSAs. If you're going to leave the money aside and not use it, 
for current expenses that you consider doing one where you invest the money instead of having it in a savings account. So that's just a thought. And one of the best providers, I believe, from what I've looked at for HSAs that you invest in is Fidelity Investments. And you can see how their plans work at Fidelity.com. Kim? Mindy says, I'm a small business owner who is not closed. However, we have had to reduce hours during this time. We are essential. But we've had three out of our nine staff members not feel comfortable coming into work during the pandemic. And although I respect their decisions, I've had to bring on other employees to take their positions until they return. Here's my question. I was just approved for a PPP loan and the funds were deposited today. Will I lose out if I can't get these same exact employees to return to work? Or is it still refundable if I have the same number of employees? Yeah, so it's about headcount because people change jobs anyway. So as long as you're maintaining uh, substantially the level of employment that you had before, then the payroll will be a forgiven thing. So there are specific ratios and the lender who did your um, PPP should be able to give you information on it. But if you aren't comfortable with that, go to sba.gov, read the briefing that's there, and you'll know the thresholds. There's a 75% threshold. There are different uh, check marks you have to meet in order to have the loan forgiveness for what you spend in those first 60 days. Joel? Clark, uh, David says, I have a question about retirement savings. I keep hearing investment firms saying that everyone needs at least a million dollars saved for retirement. My wife and I will have about $300,000 saved up, but we also expect about $1.3 million in Social Security benefits over the first 25 years of our retirement. Our house will be paid off, and we don't expect taking on any new significant debt. So should I be worried? We're not planning to live in an extravagant lifestyle. So if you take your $300,000 you expect to have in retirement, and multiply it by 4%, that's the amount you can comfortably spend each year and not have to worry about running out of money. So that's $12,000 a year added to what you're going to have in Social Security. If that combination of what you'd get from Social Security every month and what you'd get like $1,000 a month from your investments, if that's enough, you're going to be good. You're going to be Uh, good to go, and you won't have to worry. If, on the other hand, you say, hey, you know, that additional thousand a month from the 300,000 we've saved is not enough for us to be comfortable, it might mean that you work maybe one more year with the express goal of piling as much money as you can into the money you're saving to live on to supplement Social Security, and your Social Security checks would be bigger by waiting one more year. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Post a question for me if you have one at Clark.com slash ask. And what we're doing right now so we can get far more topics addressed than we normally do is having producers Kim and Joel ask your questions for you. Kim, who do you have? This is Joshua's question, and he says, can you speak to the broad economic issues that we're facing right now? For example, what does tanking oil prices really mean for the economy? Are we just going to experience a period of deflation? Isn't that bad? I'm just looking for a little assurance that the world is not completely falling apart. So temporarily, the world has fallen apart. I mean, if you look at the massive levels of unemployment in Asia, Europe, and the United States, the the world is going in reverse. But a lot of it is temporary in nature, something measured in months, not years. So some areas of employment will take longer to come back than others. And there will be sectors of the economy that have deflation. Oil, obviously, is one that anybody who's been out on the roads and you see the price of gasoline dropping, you see a clear example of deflation and the cost of used vehicles deflating, now down 13% year over year. And so there are certain parts of the economy that have gone into a spiraling downward price mode, but others have gone up. If you go in the supermarket, you've seen price rises. The overall net effect, if we stayed in hibernation for an extended period of months, yeah, we'd have deflation and we'd have potentially the first phase of a depression. But I don't see any of that happening as we around the world are going to do this accordion thing with opening up more or less depending on the outbreak of coronavirus in each area, each country, each state. Joel? Clark Becky says, my husband and I are planning a trip out west in late, in late September. When would be the best time to book our flight? And do you think ticket prices will continue to drop? So nobody knows what's going to happen with ticket prices as people tentatively start getting on airplanes. But I would guess that some of the extremely cheap prices we're seeing now may be more the bottom than what we're going to see once people do get a little more confidence about flying. So if it were me, if you see a screaming deal and look at google.com slash flights, if it shows historically it's extra low, buy it. The podcast normally would end here, but because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to. And this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant. I want to talk about something that um, is something that we've talked about as a crew, Kim, Joel, and I, and that is what information do we have 
on our loved ones in the event someone takes ill. You know, right now, bigger focus because of coronavirus. But as an example, um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law have an arrangement set up with one of their two sons and with my daughter where they have documents with the combination that my uh, brother-in-law knows and, of course, my wife knows where they can get into a safe that has in it a list of all their bills, has their wills in it and uh, durable power of attorneys for health care, um, and in addition has usernames and passwords for all key accounts. So in the event that they became incapacitated, my brother-in-law or my wife can go in and make sure that bills are getting paid that need to be paid, that their wishes would be met in the event that they couldn't speak for themselves if they were in a position in a hospital where they were in bad shape, that they wouldn't have to guess what their mother or their father would like to have happen in a circumstance where they can't speak for themselves. Having access to the will, knowing what final arrangements they would like and all the rest, these are things that are things you should do at any time and update once a year because passwords change, accounts change, and that kind of thing. But we just don't normally think about it. So what I like for you to do is use coronavirus as an excuse to talk to relatives and make sure they've made some kind of system like that. And that also for a husband and wife or partners or whatever, a couple that each knows the other's information, unless they don't trust them, that they each know the other's information so that in the event that one needs to take care of things or advocate for the other, they know how to do it. And so these are generally conversations people don't welcome, but right now I think people are more welcoming of it. If you think about how many questions I've had about wills and funerals, people are thinking about this kind of stuff, so use that as an opportunity. In addition, if you are somebody who has no close family, if you have a friend who you really trust, who's the person you would turn to, who's the person you would want to be the executor of your estate, then make sure you have an arrangement with that individual where key information on you is known to them and available to them if that became necessary. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. Now, one area of the economy is usually the largest thing that hits our wallets every month, and that's where we live, our housing. And for two-thirds of Americans, it's a home that you live in or are buying. And so I wanted to talk about that. I've got new data on the number of people who have not been able to make their mortgage payments, and it has risen to 5.9% latest data available. It was trending at about 4%, but the number has moved up some once we went past the 15th of the month when people last week 
ended their grace period on getting their payments done. But roughly six out of 100 people with a mortgage did not make their April mortgage payment. Now, by comparison with renters, a third of renters could not make their rent payment. And there are a couple of factors in that. One is that uh, the stakes are higher for a homeowner because you've got down payment money in that house, you've been paying on it for a while, and so paying the mortgage may be a priority you put ahead of other bills that a renter may have said, well, you know, the rent, I'd like to pay it, but i got to do this, that, or the other first. Also, many times, homeowners may be more financially secure than a lot of times renters might be. But be that as may, the house market is in a significant slump right now. The data that's come in now for the month of March found that sale of used homes, what real estate agents like to call existing homes, dropped 8% this March versus March a year ago, according to the National Association of Realtors. And this is significant because not quite half, but close to all home sales happen during the spring selling season. And people are, are pulling back their listings. Buyers are not that interested in buying right now because the market is uncertain. And so I've had a number of people ask me, in this time where buyers are dropping out, is this actually a good time for you to be looking for a home? Well, one of the angles on this is something you normally don't talk, hear me talk a lot about with excitement, and that is if you want to buy a new home. The people interested in buying a new home has declined significantly. Um, I saw in the Wall Street Journal that cancels of contracts for people under contract to buy new homes are now about one in four people are walking away and walking away from earnest money and stuff just they're not proceeding uh, people selling an existing home their home are saying you know what maybe this just isn't the time for me and pulling those homes off the market i think there's a potential opportunity if your job secure and you're still interested in buying a home, that where I always talk about how much more money you get for the square footage buying used instead of new, there well may be an opportunity for you with new unsold inventory in the market. Think of it this way. If I'm living in a home, I don't need to move generally. And so I can say, you know, this just isn't my moment. I'm pulling it off the market. On the other hand, if I built a new home as a builder, either a big publicly traded one or a small local one, I'm sitting there with that home unloved, unoccupied, costing me interest on a construction loan, and I got no income coming in, I may be more willing to make a deal and offer discounts for a buyer coming to buy that home. You add into it the great interest rates, why not? You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. 
Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.